If you missed last week, uh, we were actually we actually began uh, our Advent series, as we typically do in the church calendar. Through the month of December, we spent the f- four weeks um, leading up to Christmas, um, just celebrating and remembering um, the Christ story and uh, the birth of Jesus, and celebrating that. So last week we uh, spent Shannon spent his time looking at Luke one. We'll spend the rest of the few weeks looking at the rest of Luke one. But uh, last week, he uh, basically helped us look at uh, the foretelling of uh, John the Baptist and all of the events leading up to that. So we'll uh, pick up from where he left off, and we'll look at the foretelling of Christ's birth uh, this morning. But before we do that, I just want to give a couple of uh, context and a couple of things that stood out to me um, to kind of help frame our conversation, frame our time together. Because I think one of the things that we often miss... Um, is when we read the New Testament, we forget how a lot of what we read in the New Testament um, are fulfillments of what was prophesied in the Old Testament or was what was spoken about in the Old Testament. So every time I get a chance, I would I like to kind of just go back to the Old Testament, point out a few things, and see how that translates into the New Testament. So I want to mention a few things before we get started, um, before we kind of look at the passage for today. But um, one of the things, um, if you're not, uh, if you already don't know, Lindsay and I are actually expecting our uh, second baby. Um, here in the next few weeks, uh, we expect her to make her arrival. And as part of uh, part of anticipating the birth of our our, our baby, uh, one of the things that we noticed, and you probably noticed this if you're expecting to or have had kids, is all of your free time is spent preparing for the birth of this child, right? Uh, getting the room ready, getting schedules lined up, getting all the details worked out, uh, work schedules, you know, um, babysitting schedules, or whatever the case may be. And a lot of times, um, our, uh, when we think about the Christmas story, uh, we often think uh, the Christmas story begins uh, with this young couple, Mary and Joseph, preparing for their child, um, Jesus. And I think um, if you look at the nativity scene, a lot of times that this is what is depicted. But if you actually look at Luke's account of what happened, and starting with last week's passage, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and down, we notice that the Christmas story does not actually begin with a young couple preparing for their baby, but rather it begins with an old couple wondering if they will ever have a baby. And I think that's important uh, in some sense because Luke does not just um, mention this. Like, why did Luke pick that as the beginning point of his account? I think it is, it is important if you keep in mind the context of where Israel is at this point in its uh, history. So um, if you, uh, I think Shannon made, uh, alluded to this last week, but if you uh, look at um, where, the, where the story begins uh, in Luke chapter 1 uh, and flip a couple of pages um, before that, if you go to the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, not the last book in the Bible, last book in the Old Testament, and I flip a few pages, you get to Matthew's account of uh, the Gospels. And while it's only a few pages, I counted, I think it's for me two pages. But it's, even though it's only one or two pages in our Bibles, it actually spans a, a period of 400 years between the last word spoken by the prophet Malachi and the first uh, record of the Gospels. And in those four, 400 years, we find that Israel is in its routine. Um, it's, so it's worshiping God in the temple, um, but God hasn't spoken to them 
through the prophets or through the priests in any significant manner that we know of, right? So temple life is going as usual. Everything is routine. Religion is, uh, you know, kept up. All the ceremonial laws are kept up. Uh, and in the midst of this is where we read the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we kind of look at this story, you have to wonder if the barrenness of Elizabeth and Zechariah is a reflection of the spiritual state of Israel, right? They don't expect life to happen. They don't expect new life to come forth. Uh, they are in their uh, kind of uh, routine and rituals um, as, we pick, as, as we pick up the story where, where, we do la- where we did last week. But as we kind of move into the story, and as Shannon kind of, I'm, I'm rehashing a few things to lead up to Mary's, uh, the story of Mary, but I think as we look at it, the first encounter we have after this 400 years is what? We see God shows up to Zechariah in the temple, and he's surprised. Uh, he's surprised to see God in God's temple. Right? I mean, that is, uh, that's a whole different sermon in it of itself, right? And a lot of times, the last place we anticipate God moving, or God's presence, is in God's house. Right? But Zechariah is surprised. He is completely baffled. He's not sure what's going on. Uh, and he, uh, the, uh, Gabriel says, hey, um, we were, God's going to give your wife Elizabeth a son. You will call him John, and we know how the rest of the story goes. But in the middle of that, there's an interesting uh, nugget that I think, uh, again, that we, I think we need to pay attention, that it's not a coincidence, that the first interaction that God has with um, Zechariah or with, this, uh, with the story in the New Testament is that he mutes the mouth of Zechariah, right? And again, I don't think it's a coincidence that as God is getting ready to announce or foretell the birth of Jesus, who is the bringer of the new covenant, that he mutes the mouths of the uh, class of people that represented the old covenant. Right? As the priests that re- and the temples that represented the old covenant, uh, he mutes them as, they, as it comes to an end, and he announces the birth of the forerunner, uh, that's going to announce the uh, birth of the founder of the new covenant, which is Jesus. This baby that uh, John the Baptist, as we read last week, was going to be a forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, he was going to be the forerunner to the eternal high priest uh, and the bringer of the new covenant. So that's kind of the context that I want to kind of just give as we dive into the passage for today. So six months after this appearance to Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, we see that the angel Gabriel appears 65 miles north of Jerusalem, in a geographically irrelevant town called Nazareth, to a teenage girl, relatively unknown, uh, other than to her family, um, call, uh, appears to her um, and announces or tells her that she is about to be the mother uh, of a savior that her entire nation, her entire people have been waiting for. I mean, no pressure, but um, she is a little bit uh, taken aback too. Uh, she is an ordinary teenage girl that is betrothed uh, to a man named Joseph. And so that's where we pick up the story uh, here in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 all the way through 38. I'll read the passage and then we'll dive in. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee uh, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and trying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, 
and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great uh, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give, him, give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so as we kind of you know, read the story and just spend some time looking at what uh, transpires over these 12 verses, I think there's a couple of remarkable things that happen, right? Remarkable uh, in, in, a, in, uh, in a lot of sense, uh, just in terms of what's actually happening. I mean, putting aside the fact that an angel appears and appears to Mary, putting all that aside, just the news that uh, Gabriel brings to Mary, I think, is remarkable. Uh, he's announcing to her that, uh, again, that she, he will, she will be the mother of the Messiah, the Messiah that the children of Israel have been waiting for hundreds of years. And I think the um, other thing I think that is worth uh, remarking about is just the differences in how the announcements are made, right? The announcement of the forerunner, again, is in the temple to a family of priests. And the announcement of the birth of Jesus, the Savior, is to a teenage girl in an irremarkable part of town. Right? The, um, but God is orchestrating uh, something something. A big and significant here, uh, in even though it is in a remote part of town, and even though it's not in the center of uh, everything that's happening. So I look at this passage as a whole, and kind of just thinking about and looking at the different um, um, events that are happening. And I think uh, I cannot help but think that God, uh, the the main theme that ties this passage together is that God is faithful. And the, 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 the aspect of God that stands out, I mean, there's a lot in here, but the aspect of God that I want to focus on from this passage today is the faithfulness of God and how he orchestrates this event, uh, it, it orchestrates these events and uh, fulfills them uh, in, this, in this passage. And so, um, for the sake of time, I wanted to kind of look at three demonstrations of God's faithfulness through this passage and kind of just look at how Mary responds to it. So just a couple, we'll look at a couple and then uh, unpack those and then kind of finish for today. So the first, uh, first demonstration of God's faithfulness uh, that we see in this passage is that he keeps his promises, right? We see that God keeps his promises and he's faithful about that. So if you were to look at, if you were to actually study this passage and look at the words that Gabriel used, the angel uses to announce to Mary uh, that she's about to be a mother, uh, we see a couple of things. One, um, we see that the angel uses a lot of uh, uh, phrases and prophecies that echo prophecies that were made in the Old Testament. And so just an uh, example that I want to point to is the first prophecy that you see here is uh, that the Messiah would be born uh, to a virgin. So we see that in verse 26, where he says, the, "In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Ga from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph 
of the house of David. This actually, this uh, is not coincidence. Again, it's not, um, uh, it's, it's an actual um, planned uh, way of framing the announcement. So because if you look at, um, if you flip a few books in the Old Testament, you'll get to prophet Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14, uh, you see that the uh, um, prophet Isaiah proclaims this prophecy to the nation of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, I'll read those, uh, the verse for you. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And so, it's almost 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. It's through God, and God gives the word to Isaiah, and Isaiah proclaims it. And God fulfills his prophecy through, God fulfills his prophecy that he gave through the prophet of Isaiah and demonstrates his faithfulness to us and to the nation of Israel in this passage that we read today. And I think we are reminded, and one of the reasons, I mean, it's not God just showing off by predicting what's going to happen and then actually fulfilling it, but rather it is him demonstrating his faithfulness as a promise keeper, as somebody who is faithful, as somebody who is able to be trusted. And as we look at Mary's uh, story today, uh, we are reminded once again that God fulfills the prophecy that he gave the prophet Isaiah. I want to look at another prophecy too that is mentioned in this passage, but I think it would, uh, I just want to spend a few time, take a quick digression. I just look at the doctrine of the virgin birth. I think it's come up um, a couple of times, I think even the last few weeks as I uh, think about, um, as we kind of people get ready for Christmas and Advent season, uh, I think it's worth just looking at um, what the doctrine of the virgin birth actually teaches and why we believe that. So first, just a quick kind of uh, definition, the doctrine of the virgin birth is just the teaching that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother, Mary, by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. So that's in just what the virgin birth, the doctrine of the virgin birth um, announces or uh, claims. And I think it's something that has been hotly debated you know, for centuries. Um, and part of it because like the resurrection, it is a supernatural event. It is not something that we normally see. And I think uh, it, it, that can, I think, cause a lot of people to um, wonder if do we need to hold closely to the virgin birth or believe the doctrine of the virgin birth, or is that something that is um, maybe optional? And I think what I, what I want to just kind of spend some time looking at it is that it is not optional for us to believe in the virgin birth, uh, and I just want to kind of unpack that a little bit. So um, if you actually look at church history, um, it is actually something that has been affirmed multiple times in multiple creeds, whether it's the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, different uh, codifications of the, of the key biblical doctrines. You see the virgin birth appearing in all of them. And so here at Redeemer, we affirm the birth of the, uh, the vir- doctrine of the virgin birth, and if you read our doctrinal statement, it's uh, mentioned under uh, under the Son or, or under Jesus. And so, I think one of the main reasons we affirm it uh, is basically because it's in the Bible. Um, it's affirmed by the Bible, um, and like I pointed out, it is first affirmed or predicted in the uh, Book of Isaiah, and then confirmed. Uh, in the gospel accounts, both in Matthew and in Luke. And so uh, as we read uh, through, the, through these um, records and as we read through these passages, we are reminded that uh, this was something that was actually planned by God and it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was happened by accident 
or was a mistake in how it was recorded. We actually believe that, is, it's a, it, that the virgin birth is a historical fact that is true. Supernatural, but true nonetheless. And so as you look at, um, you know, kind of the details of it, I mean, you know, I think professing believers can't, can debate about the details of why a virgin birth was necessary or what the details are, but all in all, I think at the very minimum, we need to affirm that the virgin birth is something that we believe um, as, 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 a, as a Christian believer. I think what happens when we don't affirm uh, the virgin birth is I think we indirectly question the validity of the scriptures. We question the truthfulness of scripture. I think um, if, if the scriptures clearly state that Jesus was born of a virgin, and we doubt it, uh, you have to wonder what else in Scripture can be doubted, right? And so I think that it kind of starts this uh, snowball effect of um, undermining some of the foundational pieces, which is the validity of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture, that I think we want to stay away from. So for that reason, we affirm the uh, doctrine of the virgin birth, and it's something as believers that we need to think about and affirm too. Now, um, the, uh, I think I, I just to mention a couple more things. I think in past conversations, I've um, I actually was just listening to a podcast recently. It was um, that I think the they were talking about this, and um, I think the somebody the, one of the people on the podcast said, you know, we don't actually believe that the virgin birth was true. I mean, it, it's like a metaphor, or it might be something that. Um, it was an exaggeration, and I think it's, it's care- we have to be careful not to fall into that trap. Um, and I think sometimes we, um, we, we wonder, we think that because we live in the 21st century and we have had all these medical advances that we know more now than, we, than folks did back then. And that's true. We know a lot more about health and medical uh, and pregnancy now. But um, even back then, people knew how babies were, came about, right? And I mean, it wasn't an actual, um, you know, surprise to them. They actually knew how this happened. I mean, if you actually read the record, if you actually read this passage for today, Mary herself asked the question uh, in verse 34. She's like, uh, how will this be since I'm a virgin, right? So she herself was not sure how this baby was about to come about, how this baby was coming about if she actually was a virgin. And so it's uh, arrogant thing, arrogant to think that they actually didn't know um, how it was, how all of this happened, so they just attributed it to God. No, this was actually something that they thought was ab- abnormal and something that was supernatural. And so some, that's why we, this is actually recorded in Scripture. I think the other thing, um, I think we can, you know, rest our, just to rest my case on is, if you look at who is writing this record, it's written by Luke, and if you know anything about Luke, he was a physician himself, right? And so he, here's a physician taking firsthand account of the virgin birth. You don't think he had a few questions about listening to Mary? He was like, uh, wait, you're saying that you're a virgin, and yep. Mary's like, yep, that's exactly what's happened. And so if Luke, the physician, is recording these things, you can be very sure that uh, he himself verified that these things were actual historical facts. So that's all I have time to say, but I just wanted to kind of just mention that as a digression, though, um, that I think we can confidently believe that the virgin birth was a historical fact, uh, and though it was supernatural, it was true nonetheless. Sound good? Okay. So... um, 
and again, I'm happy to answer questions that you might have about it. Um, you know, me or Steve, or I'm putting Steve on the spot, but, uh, or Shannon can be, be happy to answer any questions about it uh, that you might have. So, but coming back to the demonstrations of God's faithfulness, so we looked at prophecy number one, that the, uh, that the Savior would be born of a virgin. The second prophecy that I want to just look at that we see fulfilled in Luke chapter one is uh, Jeremiah's prophecy that the King, the Savior, would be born in the lineage of David. And so we see that uh, in, in, uh, in chapter 1 of Luke, chapter, uh, in verse um, 27, it says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And then if you skip a few verses down, uh, it says in verse 32, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And so uh, we see that uh, this, this uh, being fulfilled, or this being um, proclaimed, Hundreds of years prior to that, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah, again, like Isaiah, was a prophet uh, of the Old Testament. And he, in Jeremiah chapter 23, in verses 5 and, six, 5 and 6, excuse me, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And so here you see Jeremiah proclaiming, uh, through the God proclaiming through Jeremiah, I should say, that he will raise up for David a righteous branch. And that, that um, refers to Jesus as being the righteous king that will reign, reign and deal wisely with um, uh, with all his nation. And so if you think about Israel and his history with the kings that they've had and the corruption uh, that took place, um, Jeremiah is prophesying that Israel will one day have a king that is righteous, that will bring peace, that, that will deal wisely with them. And we see this being uh, fulfilled in this um, birth announcement or birth uh, foretelling of Jesus. And I think by God, by... Um, uh, ordaining uh, Mary and Joseph to be Jesus' parents confirms this prophecy uh, proclaimed in Jeremiah. He faithfully keeps the promise he made through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. And it's actually a promise that he made David when David was king that uh, the children of Israel would have this righteous king. And so I think both of these uh, quick examples are uh, just two ways that I think we can look at. And there's multiple prophecies here that I think it comes out to like 10 or 12 prophecies that are fulfilled in this uh, birth foretelling. But I, just for the sake of time, I just wanted to point out this too. So it's, again, I think it's a reminder that God demonstrates his faithfulness to us by keeping the promises he's made. It could be hundreds of years, uh, 700 years in the case of Isaiah, more in terms of Jeremiah. Uh, it, but God faithfully still brings to pass what he's proclaimed uh, in his scripture. The second demonstration, the first one obviously is uh, God's um, promise and faithfulness in keeping his promises. Um, the second demonstration that we see uh, of God's faithfulness is that he provides his own son as a redeemer for us um, as we look at this passage. When we look at um, why Jesus had to be born as a baby and why he had to become, why he had to put on human flesh, I think we are reminded, as John 3.16 says, that for God to love the world, that he gave his only begotten son. And so God, after uh, going through the temple uh, system, going through the priest system, going through the sacrificial system, going through the ceremonial system, decides that the only way he can redeem his people fully is to send his only son. 
his only begotten son, for him to uh, put on human flesh and human skin, be born as a baby, so that he could redeem this people for himself. And I think it's sometimes we, uh, we forget that the whole point of the Christmas story is that Jesus was sent as a son, as a baby, as, a, as God's son, um, and as a baby uh, to be born uh, sinless, to uh, live sinless, and to die as a sinless savior. And so I think if we look at it and keep it in mind, I think we're, uh, we see that God is showing his faithfulness through this, that God could have uh, written more uh, scriptures to proclaim his love. He could have sent more priests and more prophets, but instead he decides that he wants to give his only son uh, to accomplish this task. And so by this action, God demonstrated that he, he loves us and that he is faithful in keeping his promises and faithful in sending his only son to die for us. So that was quicker than the first one. I hope this third one also will be a quick. I think the third demonstration that we see of God's faithfulness is the way in which he honors Mary's faith. Right? As we look at this passage, um, we, we see where, I mean, it, it's hard not to notice how Mary responds to Gabriel's uh, announcement, right? And if you contrast that, I don't have time to do that, but if you contrast that with how Zechariah receives Gabriel's message, I think there, it, it kind of just... Uh, reiterates for us the task that Mary uh, was in or the situation that Mary was in. And so we look at uh, what Mary is being asked to do. If you know what the historical context is, what the cultural context is, what God is asking Mary to do uh, is outrageous, really. Uh, it's amazing, but it is outrageous to her, uh, and it actually puts her in an embarrassing position. If you look at the story, um, Mary um, you know, um, is betrothed to uh, her husband Joseph, and in that in those days, the betrothal was about a year. It was as good as being married, um, and for a betrothal to be broken, it had to they had to go through a divorce process. And so we see in Matthew's account that um, the angel actually appears to Joseph and and uh, tells him not to uh, divorce um, Mary, but to uh, continue to be uh, her husband or to continue to mar- get married to her and be her husband, um, but. This could have gone wrong in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you think about Mary's uh, position. She's a teenage girl, um, potentially facing family rejection, right? Because of the social stigma around being pregnant without being married, uh, the public disapproval of uh, a nation that um, did not look highly on this, and loss of her fiance, and really the possible loss of her own life. I think if you look at all of these and kind of put that in context of where Mary is at as she's listening to this, Announcement. I think you recognize the position that Mary finds herself in. But God is faithful to her too. God doesn't just give her the announcement. It's like, okay, go ahead and do it. right? He faithfully walks her through this uh, process. He doesn't leave her hanging. He honors her obedience and submit, as Mary submits to God's will. So just looking at a couple of uh, ways he does that. First, again, he um, asks Joseph, and this is not in this account, it's in uh, Matthew's account of the story, but if you look at that account, you see that um, the angel appears to Joseph and asks him not to uh, divorce Mary. The other thing as you look at it is, um, as Mary's listening to what's being proclaimed to her, um, she is a Jewish teenage girl, so she is very familiar with uh, what the Jewish scriptures um, uh, taught, and when she hears the words from Gabriel, Greet, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you, um, 
it is, those are not just plain words. Those are words that indicate, a, uh, that come with a lot of historical context. Uh, if you look again back at, uh, at the Old Testament, you see that those words, those the Lord is with you, has been, was spoken to Moses when he was called to lead the children of Israel out of, of Egypt. You see the same words with uh, being proclaimed to Joshua. Joshua was promised that the God would be with him as he led the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. We see, that, uh, we see the same words being proclaimed to David, to, um, to Gideon, who was another prophet in the Old Testament, um, and was asked when before he was called to free the Israelites from the Midianites, was told, don't be afraid, God is with you. So as Mary's listening to these words from Gabriel, she's thinking, she's thinking back to all the times these words have been spoken and wondering, uh, what exactly am I getting signed up for here? Right? She, she recognizes that the, these are not just words being spoken by the angel, but that it carries a sense of weight. But I don't think it is coincidental that the angel uses those words. Right? It is to remind her that God is going to actually be with her as she walks through this uh, process, as she walks through this, as she walks into this calling and is obedient to God's calling for her life. And so I think the, uh, so that's the second thing is that we notice the way God is with uh, Mary through this process. I think lastly, um, Mary is informed that uh, Elizabeth, her rel- relative, is also pregnant. I mean, this would have been a shock to her too because Mary and uh, Elizabeth is way past uh, childbearing age. And so for Mary to hear that a barren woman is now actually going to give birth would have been a shock. Uh, it's somebody that she knew as a relative. And so this is something that would have uh, gotten her somewhat comfortable, I would think. It was like, if, she, if God can do this for her, then God can do this through me, through this through me too. And I think it is... Uh, in those three ways, I think God uh, reminds Mary that he is with her and that he's faithful as, he, as she walks through this process. Uh, the last thing I want to kind of look at as I kind of finish up for today is just to look at Mary's response uh, and as she responds to this. So as she listens to God's prophecies being fulfilled, as she listens to uh, what she's being asked to, um, as she's being asked to be obedient to, uh, it's worth, I think, looking at how she responds to it. Uh, I think if you read verses 34 to 36, and just quickly read it before we kind of dive into it, it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so you know, again, in a matter of a couple of verses, Mary moves from, how can this be, to let your will be done. Right? Mary, quickly, Mary moves uh, from apprehension and anxiety to trusting God uh, as he unveils his plan with her. And I think it's important, I think, um, to just watch that progression as Mary is obedient to God's word. And I think it actually teaches us um, how we need to progress a lot of times when God calls us to, these, uh, to whatever he's calling us to. I think a lot of times, and you know, if you've been a believer any length of time, God often calls us uh, to these difficult and insurmountable circumstances, right? 
whether it is um, taking up a new job, whether it's um, you know trusting God uh, for uh, healing, whether it's uh, trusting God um, for um, reconciliation, for healing, uh, spiritual uh, life, whatever the case may be, oftentimes when God calls us um, to these things, we often are ap- apprehensive, right? We're nervous. We're like, oh man, uh, I'm not. I haven't spoken to this person for so long, but I need to be reconciled. God's calling me to be reconciled to this person. How do I do that? You know, uh, oh maybe that's just, you know, something that I ate yesterday and not, you know, God speaking, or it's not an impression from God. And oftentimes we justify it. Oh, God's not really asking me to do that. God's not really asking me to start that ministry. God is not really asking me to. Uh, give of my finances. God is not really asking me to do this, but I think just like Mary, I think we need to be paying attention to those impressions or those ways that God speaks to us, whether it is through the word, uh, whether it's in prayer, whether it is in community, whether it's through the pulpit, whatever the case may be. I think as God calls us to these insurmountable oftentimes or uh, difficult, um, um, difficult callings, I think we need to pause, trust God, and lean on him as he leads us through this, through these, um, through the way that he leads us through this process. I think a lot of times, as believers, we we and you don't have to believer, you have to be a believer for this. But a lot of times, we have a hard time stepping out of our comfort zone. Right? We know what we need to do: show up on Sunday, you know, sing a few songs, listen to the sermon, go about, um, uh, go about our lives. But I think anytime God interrupts those that sequence, anytime God interrupts um, that, uh, our lives, whether it is through a sickness, whether it is through a rebellious child, whether it is calling to take on a new job or start a new ministry, I think we sense a spinning in a lot of ways. It's not what we signed up for. You know? It's not what we uh, want to do. What, all the things that will be disrupted by following God um, is, is what runs through our mind. But I think just like Mary, <clears throat> I think we need to uh, ask the crucial question, will we allow our fear to keep us from leaning into God as he calls us into these things? Will we allow our fear to keep us from fulfilling or being obedient to what God's calling us to do? And I think that uh, uh, is critical for us to remember. As you look at this passage, uh, one of the things that you actually notice is that um, Mary, um, the word that uh, Mary, the, the word that is used here, um, how will, you know, she, as she considers, as she ponders on what the angel is telling here, the word I think that is used here uh, is the word that, is, that translates to the English word dialogue. It's, she's having a conversation with herself. She's like, this is a bad idea. What is it that I'm thinking? What am I being asked to do, right? She's having, she's considering, she's deliberately uh, having this conversation with her. And oftentimes, this is where we find ourselves, right? When God calls us to do, uh, God calls us to new things, uh, what God calls us to repent of our sin. God calls us to uh, be in community. God calls us to serve. Uh, we have these conversations with ourselves, but it's not unusual uh, for that to happen. But I think the key question we need to ask again is, will we allow our fear and our apprehensions to keep us from leaning in and trusting God uh, as he calls us to, uh, calls us to these uh, things, as he calls us to be part of his will and be part of the story that he's writing um, through our through, through our lives. I think so. I think the, the, where I want to leave us with that is just to think about the next time God's calling us. Or you're probably there today. You're probably pondering something that God's already called you to do. Right? It might not be something 
uh, as, as significant as what Mary's being called to, but it, maybe it's a small step. Maybe it's to go talk to your neighbor. Maybe it's to share the gospel with somebody. I think we need to ask ourselves to not allow our fears to override what God's calling us to do. So that, that's, as I think about Mary's response, that's what comes to mind for me is, how am I going to not allow fear to override what God's calling me to do? So as the band kind of comes up, I just want to kind of leave us with this, uh, this thought that at this Advent season, we can confidently trust God uh, in his faithfulness because he's proven himself faithful, whether it's through the fulfillment of his prophecies, whether it's the, the way he sent his son to die as a savior for us, or whether he, um, or with the way he was faithful with Mary as she was obedient to his will. Uh, we can trust that as we are obedient to God, uh, through the big and the small things that he's calling us to do, we, we can trust that God will be with us. We can lean in on him and we can trust him. Sound good? Right, let me pray for us. and then, um, Father, we thank you for uh, this time together uh, as we kind of look at this uh, passage where uh, we read about the foretelling of your Savior coming. Uh, we are reminded that... Um, as we look at the story, that Mary was not called to a small task, but the way uh, this teenage girl exercises her faith, leans in on you, and trusts you to see this come to pass, we are reminded that we as believers need to uh, not allow fear to override the things that you've called us to do. We don't justify away, we don't explain away the things that you're uh, asking us to step into that small changes or big changes or uh, big uh, life decisions. Uh, we pray that this Advent season that we are reminded that you are faithful and that you will lead us through these um, changes. That you're not calling us to walk this journey by ourselves, but as you write the story uh, of human history, that you have called each of us to be part of that. that by being faithful in the things that you've called us to do, we get to be part of your will the story that you're writing. I pray for all the folks that are here. I know there's lots of things that you've called a lot of us to do. And some of us have been sitting on it for a while. I pray that this Advent season, that it will be a time that it will be a time that we reconsider those things that you've called us to do. That we in prayer will bring our fears to you. That we'll bring our, we'll ask our communities around us to pray for us the life groups will surround us as we as families take these steps of faith we ask all this in Jesus name